Got my McDonald's here. Yeah, y'all ready? I'm good. I haven't had McDonald's in a long time. What'd you guys pick? Uh, I went with the... Wait, I have a question for you first. Yes, you there. The, the, post, <laughs> the Postmates delivery that you did. <laughs> is that... Who's working in your office with you today? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? <laughs> it wasn't that big. <laughs> it, was a, it was a good amount of items. Here, if we've learned anything, it's that three is two, two is one, and one is none. Whenever you order... <laughs> If you're going to order food, you should get at least twice as much as you actually need. Um, I ordered, you know, yeah, the, you know, it hadn't occurred to me. You can see where my office is. <laughs> you can see what I ordered. Uh, what I have actually consumed <laughs> from my... <laughs> so half the sandwiches are still in the bag. I had um, two Egg McMuffins, <laughs> two hash browns, and then whenever I have McDonald's, I also have an auxiliary hash brown. I have an emergency backup hash brown that I eat as I'm eating. Oh, and I should mention, I put the hash brown on the breakfast sandwich when I eat it. So Whoa. then I need an extra one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I need an adjunct, like a, an emeritus uh, hash brown hell on the side <laughs> to complement. I call it a pairing. <laughs> so that's how I roll. Because here's the thing. When you order from Postmates, it's, it's a little costly. Exactly. And the, the, exactly. Yeah. And the delivery charge doesn't change if you get a little bit. So when I get Popeye's <laughs> delivered that way, I get the 12-piece box with two large sides. And then I sleep for four hours. I have a... Um... I have, I've made a... Oh, shit. Uh, if you're eating on the air, then I am. Oh, yeah. Big time. Hey, listen, it's a Top Chef podcast. It's a food podcast. I mean, this is part of the full sensory experience. People get to I'm hear gonna, I'm going to develop some flavors here. Now, Merlin, I made two... I have sort of two life decisions that are coming together today in a really unfortunate way for me. So the first thing is <clears throat> I have had... Uh, I've had the same pair of headphones for like a couple years. And last week, I picked them up to, to put them on in the morning... And the top, you know, the plastic part on the top just snapped in half. Oh, no. Um, yeah. I picked these headphones because they looked cool. Uh, so it, they, had a, they had a good life ba uh, for, for what I paid for them and what I expected. You gave them a good home. Yeah. I spent a lot of time uh, on, on, uh, on my head accruing like a weird wax on the, uh, on the plastic on top that I never thought about too much. Also, the fake leathery part starts kind of peeling off eventually. Oh, and it gets it's really it's gross. Sloughing off and chipping. Yeah, not good. So I was, I got very excited, and I was like, "All right, I get to go on Marco's uh, <coughs> headphone website." And I went and read his headphone reviews. And I, I didn't fully understand all of the factors, but I just bought the best headphones that he recommended. They were a little costly. Did you get the open outsidey ones? No. Uh, in this review, he only was looking at the closed ones because he's okay. like, "It's not really considerate to use those in like an office environment." Or and you get, don't you get bleed when you're podcasting? Yes. Yeah, because they're basically like speakers. So I got a pair of headphones, and I've been a little, I've been a little, uh, well, as Alex can tell you, I, when I walked into the studio a few minutes with them, I was sort of making fun of it. I was like, I was like, who, why would you ever spend this much money on headphones? And I put them on, and, like, my jaw dropped. Like, really? it's crazy. The amount of stuff I can hear is crazy. So anyway, now I got that going on in the McDonald's, and I now, for the first time in my life, I understand why people don't like to hear eating on podcasts. Yeah, it's bad. It's I've never heard I've never heard it before. It's so gross. Yeah, I don't think anybody looks forward to hearing other people chew food, but I think there are some people that are feel especially strongly about. It. Like if you're in an office and you can hear somebody making a noise, like you hear a even just a smacky noise. Mm -hmm. Here, here's one that kills me. This is mine. This is, this is, my, this is my dead stepfather. Ready? Mm. So you hear that once. So one dingus in San Francisco does that, and you're ready to kill the guy. 
every sip of coffee my dead stepfather ever took went through that made that particular noise. Didn't matter how hot it was. It was just the thing he did. He made a smacky noise. Yeah, it's hard. And then, well, you don't know, uh, don't think of that while you're cooking, Merlin. Mm, no, because that will become a very scarring thing, and then you'll cut yourself and make. Jerk what did broccoli? I? What did I say? What did I say last week? Uh, what did you say last week? What did I say? I said I can't. I can't. I we literally said this last week on the podcast. I said I had a hard time watching the the fight the fighty the long windy man with the the Frenchman with the squashed up face. Oh yeah, hands. sure. Um, the, uh, are, you, are you having a stroke right now, Max? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I mean, the, those uh, headphones might be a little tight on you. The, <laughs> the Last Chance Kitchen. Last week on The Last Chance Kitchen, I said I, I am not comfortable with the mandolin technique. They just go flying on this mandolin. They use no safety gear. Oh, right. And right, I was right. like this. And it really bothers me to watch because I cut my finger off. I cut the exact same finger in the exact same way. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, I do know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, I got Maybe mixed. I was thinking about my father. Oh, of course you were thinking about your father and how you used to sell candy on subways. Mm-hmm. You know, I got mixed feelings about this episode. There are parts I like that. Alex, are you joining us this week? I, I, I don't know. Am I? Am yes. I in, okay. Yeah. You're joining That's not that, Alex, that is not the sound of a professional podcaster joining a podcast. Hey, Alex, are you rejoining this week? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> 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 Oh, crazy Ira and the douche. <laughs> Merlin, can I tell you how, how I was introduced to Top Chef? Yes. I think it was my second day of work at Cards, and we were producing the show, Tabletop Deathmatch, and Max is like, wait, so you've never seen Top Chef? I wanted to look, look like Top Chef. Uh, so my first day of work, he's like expensive to the company, and my entire day, I just watched the fourth season of Top Chef. Wow! Um, and that was my job for a day. That's a good job. Uh, it was a great That's job. Good job. Um, yeah, and I, I was like, oh, I get to watch lesbians fight over cooking at my oh, job. Man, so much, so much like, so much like your dreams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is exactly what Cards Against Humanity is all about. Um, <laughs> but I, because I, I don't, um, I, I don't like to say I don't care about food, but I don't, I, I don't know, I don't appreciate like the finer tastes of things because I like Padma. I'm a super taster, and like everything to me tastes gross and too wait, bitter. Padma is not a super taster. Yes, she is. So yeah. is John Syracuse. Well, wait a minute. I can't, this is not compatible with what I know about super tasters, because what I know about, so I've known a few super, like, I've known a few, like, medically diagnosed super tasters, and they all eat like you, Alex, which is, when you Mm -hmm. say that you don't appreciate the finer, you know, things of food or whatever, it's a bit of an understatement. Alex (laughs) pretty much eats foods that are only one color, that are white. It's a lot of bread. No, no, I've I've incorporated brown, so some nice, you know, quinoa. Okay. (laughs) I mean, bread and grains, like very simple food, um, grilled cheese. Only if it's one kind of cheese. Yeah, super, I mean, super tasters don't, they can't, they won't eat vegetables, they won't eat sour, bitter, spicy. It's like too sensitive. And so I'm looking at the Wikipedia, is it more, you you taste bitterness more? Is that it? That's th- that's it, um, which is why I'm enjoying uh, a Diet Coke from McDonald's right now <laughs> and not a, not coffee. Um, I just – almost everything is too bitter. Um, th- there are varying degrees, though, which is 
like i i should make a super cut of the times padma's like oh it's just it's too bitter it's too spicy because she always says she likes spicy foods but i think that's just because everything is spicy to her oh interesting so you taste so the one part of it is the bitterness is accentuated another one is whatever flavors there you taste it a lot more yes okay oh my goodness when did you when did you become aware that this I mean, there's so many things where we all have like a little weirdness. And if it doesn't have a name or it doesn't have a diagnosis, I mean, think about how many decades went by where we didn't have a name for like spectrum disorders. And there were like these little kids that grew up that could have like pretty great lives, except they all had to go to the Brown reading group because we didn't have a name for what was going on in their head. Like in your case, when did you become aware that this, that you were different in that way? And when did you get a name for it? It was when I went to an ear, nose and throat doctor and he was just like, huh, that, your tongue looks weird. Um, and they just <laughs> did a uh, little test on my tongue. And they're like, oh, you you have really sensitive taste buds. You're a super taster. And I was, I just always thought that I was picky and weird. Um, but and, and I mean, I am. But now I have a medical excuse for it. You're so lucky. Did they give you like a card? I, oh, I should have asked. I should have. I, I should print out. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody loves the little kid that shows up at somebody's house with a card. Oh my goodness, that that is so interesting to me. And what an odd thing for for Papa to be on a show like this. Because the other thing, you know, there's so much we never talk about that I think about every episode. One of which is like, I wonder if the foods, like you know, the food's well prepared, but like, is it actually like hot? You know what I mean? Like, you know, they're gonna have to do multiple takes and stuff like that. And like, have you ever been in a play where you have to eat or drink something? <laughs> like, so many of us have. <laughs> Like many Americans, <laughs> I've been in plays where I've had to eat or drink things. And like the last, oh, it's so gross. You watch Stephen Colbert have to drink something from under the desk and you know that's no fun. So like, I mean, you know, it must be really, you mu- You got to eat like 16 different weird dishes in this weird environment and probably more than one take. Doesn't it seem like that would get pretty gross? I know, Um, <clears throat> I heard a, um, uh, uh, who was the guy who played uh, Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec? Uh, what was that? Uh, it's uh, oh god, I I, I, I'm, I'm not all the way through this McDonald's coffee yet, so I'm a little slow this morning. Nick uh, Offerman. Thank you, Nick Offerman. Uh, I heard I heard Nick Offerman um, uh, was uh, interviewed by Peter Sagal in Chicago when he was uh, on his book tour promoting his book uh, Paddling Your Own Canoe, and he told a great story that one time uh, that that he was that he, that that he merged so thoroughly with the character of Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec that as the writers and Parks and Rec began to inflate the legend of Ron Swanson. Because <laughs> he they, started out as like not a big character, but he wasn't – he didn't become the Ron Swanson that he became. He was just kind of a side character. That, right. A lot of – He was like a, a kind of a one-bit character for a while. The, the Paul Bunyan aspect of him g- grew over time. And it was – I mean it was great. It was a great direction for the character to go. But the he said the writers often forgot that he, Nick Offerman – was not capable of doing the things that the show had established that Ron Swanson could do. So they would often have a stage direction in the script like, Ron eats an entire hamburger in one bite. (laughs) (laughs) And then they would have to do 30 takes in a diner where he would try to, he would attempt to eat an entire hamburger in one bite. Oh, God. And he, at some point, he would have to be like, I know that Ron Swanson is supposed to be able to do this, but I, Nick Offerman, cannot do this. Uh, Just, was that, wait, or, wait, wait, don't tell me. Wait, wait, don't tell me, Peter. Segal. Yeah, so I just dropped in the link uh, to that one. I, also, I h- highly recommend an interview from last May with him on uh, on Fresh Air uh, that's really, really good, where he talks about his background. And the great thing about Nick Hoffer, he's such an interesting guy. He's so much like his character and so much not like his character. 
I learned Cordy told me about this too, where like, um, you know, Nick Offerman, he, he, you know, how he does that giggle. Yeah, that's like his laugh. As mm-hmm. that's how he laughs. He giggles <laughs> like a girl. Like that's how he la- he laughs at lots of things, and he's very joyous. He is like a manly man, and like he does have his own. We'll put it in notes. He has his own like carpentry and wood carving studio where he sells stuff. But uh, but also, I mean, like he's an he's an artist. Like he went to I think he studied dance at some point. Maybe he like studied, he's a... he studied kabuki. So he talked about this when I saw him uh, uh, do a talk. He he studied kabuki in Japan. And in, uh, the thing he took, and so he was talking about how Kabuki sort of like influenced uh, the Ron Swanson character. And in Kabuki, it's this like larger than life. You do something funny, and then you strike a pose, and you like thrust your hips, and you mug to the audience, and people throw coins at you to appreciate the over the top, you know, commitment. Like if you na- if you nail the nail the landing, exactly. But but you're like mugging in a way that's like a, an over a caricature of like how how uh, manly and arrogant you are. And that just totally became the Ron Swanson thing of like, you know, like uh, 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 having this open body posture and like taking a beat to like mug after he said something cool and look at the camera like all came out of studying Kabuki in Japan. But like his comedy takes where like he I don't know, he's he's one of those great actors where he has certain looks that like something funny. I, I love Parks and Rec, first of all, but also he, just his reaction shot of something where he's. Something has happened that is so distasteful to his values, like something involving government or skim milk happens, and and just just his look, his look of a, like utter shame for society is is always so funny to me. Super tasters, super tasters. Why why is the why is McDonald? I have I just finished a uh, a Big Mac, and it's my first Big Mac and. A good long time. It, why does it have to taste so good? It's so good. Science. It's so good. I want to. I want to believe the popular conception that McDonald's not only is it bad for you, but it's like cheap bad food that tastes bad. But it doesn't. It tastes so good. Yeah. Well, that that's the. Th- I used to work at McDonald's uh, for a while when I was in high school and a little after high school. Nothing feels quite as good as graduating from high school and going through your job at McDonald's. <laughs> I didn't, I couldn't watch Live Aid because what I was, was working sta- the grill. What was your station? I was on grill. Okay. I also did. Uh, I also did the counter. Uh, they called it. They called it. It was confusing because they called it window. Drive through was drive through, but the counter was window, and then there was grill. I was usually on the grill. It seems. It seems like the deep fry station is the is the tough job assignment at a McDonald's. Well, you know, the tough job assignment at McDonald's is being a closer, and I was also a closer, mm. and that's where every night you had to filter the tallow. <laughs> Or change the talent. <laughs> oh, no. And there's a big giant machine. Usually the maintenance guy would do it, but sometimes we'd have to do it to like you filter the French fry grease every night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just cleaning up in McDonald's is a, is a real journey of personal discovery. <laughs> there's because mm, you know because the ladies, the retired ladies who come in in the morning to do breakfast, like they're they're they are hardcore. They have been working at McDonald's since they retired. They're very happy. They're like family. And then you got to clean up after they leave. You got to clean up all their like biscuit nonsense. And then uh, do lunch, you do lunch, you do dinner, you know. Uh, here's the thing about McDonald's is that it, it's, it's, it's got a bad rap. I mean, it's not very good for you. But if you go to a corporate McDonald's that is busy, the food will be great because of science. Like, they know how to make this great-tasting burger that's incredibly consistent. And, I mean, if you think about a Big Mac, think about, like, again, like, whatever, like, what's that stupid phrase everybody uses, uh, taste profile or whatever? You know what I mean? Like you think about the combination of all those different flavors and textures, 
And it's a work of genius. That little extra third middle bun and the special sauce and the two pickles that in a corporate McDonald's will never touch. Like, that's brilliant. The way it's put together is, is exquisite. It's just, it's this McDonald's I got today, my egg muffin and my hash browns, they're exquisite. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's like a, it's a texturally perfect hamburger. It just, it just dissolves away to nothing on your tongue. And you get just a little bit of crunch from the lettuce. Like, it's a... Well, if you put fries on there, boy, it takes it to the next level. Well, I haven't I haven't explored this whole thought. You don't technology. put potatoes on your food? No. I haven't explored oh, Well, man. I'll do a, I'll do potato chips on a sandwich, but I don't good, know why good. I haven't I haven't abstracted this to McDonald's. Um well, you know, um watching burgers come up a lot on Top Chef. And uh and, and recently on an episode of Kitchen Nightmares we saw they went to a burger place and like I am not a fan of the jokey novelty sized burger. It never have been. Like, to me, when you go to a place, it's like, would you like the third pound, the half pound, or the seven pound? And it's like, you know what? Just give me a regular hamburger. A third of a pound is probably on the upper limit of what I would want in a burger. And then you put freaking avocado on it, and you make it into, like, a tuna tower. It's like, don't do that. Like, that's that's weird. And it's hard. And the thing is, there's all this ambition. This is a very Top chef point, I think. Uh, there's a lot of ambition in the ideas behind the menu, but in the execution at scale, it's very difficult to do well. To get a really a good burger that's done properly to like where it's just a little bit shy, to me, like a little bit shy of medium is usually a good burger. Too rare in a burger, I'm not crazy about because it, it, it hurts the integrity of the sandwich. But like, you know, you get that right, and that's, that's a wonderful thing where it's not hard to eat. I mean, what do you think of this? What do you what do you guys think about the giant the giant ass burger that's like like got jokey ingredients on it? Well, this is a Chicago institution. I mean, there's a famous place called Kuma's that's like a heavy metal bar, but they make burgers and they're very intense about it. And you get, you know, a pound and a half of meat with a whole pork chop on half on top. And they kind of like yeah. pioneered this like you know these like. Uh, wacky fine dining. It's like douchebag dare, douchebag dare food. A little bit, but they're like below. I mean, it's not douchey. It's actually, it sort of has a wink and a nod to it, and it's it's a it's a beloved institution in Chicago. And it's just not my it's just not my thing. Like I like a I like a thin, crisp burger. Uh, it doesn't have to be well done. You can still have that be rare. But I like the uh, sear on the outside. I I like the getting a piece of uh, a cheese on every patty. Like it's just a better burger. That's just my my. I don't know. Maybe it's kind of more of a nostalgic burger. What about what about you, Alex? Does the charring like my daughter likes a fair range of foods, but she is a little iffy about well char grilled food. And I wonder if you're like that. Does char grilling make things too bitter for you? It really depends, actually. I think it depends on the texture of it. Like I like burgers very, very well done and a lot of bread on the bun and not much meat. Uh, so I have no authority on this whatsoever. Uh you're allowed to have an opinion, though. Yeah. Do, you, do you like a McDonald's burger? I have never had a McDonald's burger in my what? life. I'm afraid I mean, this of that a, road. Of what? I'm afraid of d- to go down that road. Oh, like, to know yeah. how good it tastes. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I don't want to do cocaine. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. It's, it's so why I don't do co- cocaine. I don't want to know. I, I I can't speak for you, but I know I would like it too much. Well, I'm a, I'm a stimulant guy. I mean, I know <laughs> those are my... Uh, not me. The, mm, not interested. <laughs> I like, like to be nice and mellow. Keep me quiet. Yeah, I, I'm like I'm an upper guy. Like I get I get enough coffee and I'm I'm <sighs> I'm euphoric. God, I miss my ADD medicine so much. I want it so much. Wait, I have a McDonald's. I have a McDonald's thing before we move on. So I'm so I'm super interested uh, in McDonald's, the corporate entity, and like how they work as a business. Just because they're fa- they're this crazy worldwide like conglomerate, and they they do their thing at a pretty high level. 
and they have for a, a long time. So I, I'm always like looking for interesting things to read about McDonald's. And I read um, the other day, I was reading an oral history of Chipotle. And there was a, tar- a time when Chipotle was owned by McDonald's. They've, they're now spun off and they're independent again. But McDonald's essentially, what, ca- what I read in that article that like blew my mind was McDonald's essentially views themselves as a, as a supply chain company. Like they're, the corporate McDonald's, their main job is just have, having the right ingredients everywhere that they need them. And that's how they pitch themselves to Chipotle of like, oh, we'll be able to get the ingredients you need. We'll combine our supply chains and you'll be able to use the McDonald's supply chain, hmm. use anything in our warehouses, and you'll get all of the ingredients you need, you know, fresh anywhere in the world. And you can just expand really quickly. And that was very attractive to all of the uh, Chipotle people. And they did the merger. And then the Chipotle people went into the McDonald's warehouse to be like, OK, let's go get our stuff. And it turned out that uh, there was only one ingredient in the McDonald's supply chain that they thought that it was acceptable to use at Chipotle, which was the bag of syrup that goes into the Coke machine. Even the lettuce wouldn't cut the uh, Chipotle. It was not what they – it wasn't the kind of lettuce they wanted. That is – whoa, that's super interesting. I also learned that um, at some point McDonald's added a salad to their menu where it had like a couple of slices of apple in it. And this was in the I don't know, 90s or – it was the first time they put an apple item on their menu. I think it's called like the McDonald's like Asian salad or something like that. And as soon as they added the salad to their menu, there was like three three thin slices of apple per salad. They overnight became the world's largest wholesale purchaser of apples. So it's like, man, even like a, a rounding error for them changes the industry. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's probably a different topic for a different day. I've never understood the Chipotle phenomenon. I, I mean, what I think I understand of the Chipotle phenomenon is that it is consistent food in a suburb where you don't have that many other options. Hmm. Like if you have to choose between like uh, <clears throat> Applebee's and the Texas Cheesecake Depository and you know and Chipotle, <laughs> you go to Chipotle because it's something something fresh. I went once with my daughter and I thought it was bewildering. I thought it was all the way down to the crazy like fake hipster style of the menu, mm-hmm. and and like it's it's fresh ish. But maybe no, no, maybe this is my San Francisco showing where like if I was going to get a burrito, I'd go get a burrito like a gentleman. I'd go to a taqueria. But I've, I've never understood the the appeal of Chipotle except in a place where you didn't have better options. I, I will I will come to the defense of Chipotle, but only but with the caveat that Chicago, it, Merlin, if you ever make it out here, I will take you for better Mexican food than you have in San Francisco. Chicago, I would enjoy that. Chicago has the well, mostly you, you come out here, and I'll take you to even better gangland massacres than you get at home. <laughs> I that ah, I think we may have the market cornered on that yeah. as well, actually, but. Uh, uh, Chicago, the the Mexican food in Chicago is un, uh, unbelievable, but it's a total. It, Chipotle has nothing to do with Mexican food. That's more of like a brand alignment for them or something. I I, I mean, it's not it's not really a fair comparison to go get like a, a burrito on Mission Street and then be like, is that which is which is more authentic, like Chipotle or Mission Street? It's its own sort of like hybrid thing. Well, I didn't I didn't even mean authentic because <clears throat> I I you know to me it's not it. A lot of the Chinese food I eat is not super authentic, but it's good at, at being that version of Chinese food, which I think is a thing, hmm. right? And so, like, for example, like, there's a pretty big difference between getting a burrito in a taqueria in the Mission. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty great thing um, versus, like, having, like, Mexican cuisine or Mexican-American, like an actual international sit-down restaurant. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty different affair. Uh, McDonald's just announced earnings for quarter four, and apparently, they, it turns out, their all-day breakfast thing uh, has been really good for them. Their earnings are up because of the all-day breakfast. Well, I, I feel like they've been wait, they've had that in their, in their back pocket for years, and they were in like a tailspin, and I'm glad this, uh, this pulled, it, uh, pulled it out for them. 
But just what you're describing, though, with the supply chain stuff, I, mean, I hope this isn't too tedious. I think it's super interesting. I think the how everything gets made part of life is very interesting. And, and you know, and how you deal – there's a kind of, like, quirky quantum weirdness that happens when you have to do anything at scale where things that don't affect – I mean, and by that I just mean that the usual laws of supply chain physics – are not the same once you get to a certain level. Because on the one hand, there are economies of scale that you might not get anywhere else. But then you get problems like, okay, now you've committed to having three apples on every plate. How can you get a safe and fresh supply of apples that's consistent across the entire United States? I bet somebody loses a lot of sleep over decisions like that. The thing that's interesting about the breakfast part is every – not every McDonald's, but McDonald's does lots of testing. And it's it's really fun to get to go to a McDonald's that you know is a test McDonald's because they'll be trying stuff where you're like, I can't believe they're doing this. Like this is such a crazy idea. And I think it does – I mean KFC is the king of this. Like what KFC does with the four ingredients they have in that place is bananas. Like the KFC slash Taco Bell, um, <laughs> they're not as effective with it, I don't think. But, uh, but in the case of McDonald's, the crazy part is A – they already have the breakfast stuff. They already it's, – it's a line of business <laughs> that is already running and doing very well. And for years, they've just been dicks about saying, no, it's 1030. You go to hell and order a Big Mac. And America goes, really? So, like, uh, it's just weird to me that they've had that all along. I have, have to imagine they know there's been demand for that all along. Why do you think they didn't do it until recently? Well, I have, I have two thoughts about it. I, the first is I bet that somewhere there's the – someone does the math of their, like – how do we have a consistent flow of customers into the McDonald's throughout the operating hours to, you know, like, like, have you ever heard this thing of like Apple stores have make the most profit per square foot of any retail store? Because of volume and because of the costliness of the goods, like a very small, in other words, a very small item might cost $200 and they'll sell 50 of them a day. Exa right, exactly. And there's not a lot of Apple stores. So people go out of their way to go specifically go to the, it's not like you'll just go to Target if they, you know, if it's, if it's closer. Or in another age, Radio Shack, where you get a, you know a B minus version of whatever it is you wanted at a low price. Right, exactly. So like all retailers like look at Apple and they're like, how do we do what they're doing? Like, and and the measure is like, how do we make that many dollars per square foot of real estate? And I think somewhere McDonald's is doing that math too, and they're like, well, obviously for what we're do, you know, for our our um, our uh, core competency is like burgers and stuff, and that's going to peak at lunch and maybe dinner and peter out throughout the rest of the day. And certainly no one's going to be in in the morning. So they're like, in order to get that, that flow of people in, we need to do the breakfast but then cut it off at 1030 to and push all of the breakfast people to this part of the day so that we can reset and prepare for the lunch rush. And right. that's going to maximize the, the you know, dollars per square foot of using this one space. And I think, I think it's just that uh, – so I think, I think they've known for years. They keep – I haven't been reading news stories about like, oh, McDonald's is considering doing all-day breakfast for like – I feel like for like five or ten years – and I think they yeah, it's like the rumors of a Deadwood movie. You're like, I'll believe it when I see it. It's happening. Yeah, I know. Well, whatever. I'll believe it when I see it. Are you guys not familiar with uh, Hamburger University? I am familiar with Hamburger University. The is this is this real? This is real. This is where every manager has to go and be trained. Now, now, if I remember correctly, isn't Chicago the headquarters of McDonald's? Uh, Elk Grove is, actually. Um, Elk Grove and Oak Brook. Alex, Alex, tell us about Hamburger University. All right. Um, Ma Max is right. To a degree, um, that 10.30 stopping point is actually one of the most, used to be one of the most profitable times of day at, at McDonald's, other than lunchtime and dinner time. Um, so that hard stop is like, 
if you have ever been through a drive through in McDonald's, um, well, before the all-day breakfast thing. <laughs> at, but at, at 1028? Yep. It is. It, Sweating. Yeah. <laughs> you, look like, you, look like Gene, you look like Gene Hackman in the French Connection. Yeah. You're banging the steering wheel. There's there's angry parents. It's, it's Come and, on! And, and then there's the thing. You need to order more shit because you're like, well, I can't get back in line if I forget something. Um. <laughs> and just, uh, just the audacity of going from, like, the perfect breakfast sandwich and hash brown to, what do you like it, McRib? for a limited time <laughs> no i don't want mcrib they actually would franchise out they used to because they wanted to compete with um yum which is you know like kfc taco bell all that and they're technically the biggest fast food i don't know what would you call them big evil conglomerate, conglomerate yeah. Of, yeah um and Are so talking about like the yum is the name of that group yeah yes. the yum brands mm-hmm. oh they used to be owned by pepsico do they still own them no uh, they wow, they're their I'm own out of the thing, yeah. Um, and so Culver's is like the best fast food I've ever had in my life, and it's my favorite thing. Um, so they would use they used to train people from Culver's, but it was it was that thing of figuring out timing, especially with smaller chains, like exactly when your highest profit margin would be. And they found that ten thirty. Interesting. I'd never heard of Culver's. Oh, Merlin. You've just, never heard of a Culver's? Oh, my God. No. Merlin, are you familiar with the Wisconsin Butter Burger? Uh, I'm looking at, at like uh, an HTML5 video of it right now, and I'm getting a little bit of a burger boner. So the, 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 the Wisconsin oh, Butter... Oh, smash it down. You smash it down. Good. Get the butter in there. <laughs> the Wisconsin Butter Burger, oh, it's a boy. smashed burger He's with butter. smashing bu- it over and over. You should watch this thing. With bu- <laughs> it's, it's a smashed burger with butter. Oh my god! So it's kind of like a stick and shake type situation, but you add butter. It, that's very accurate, but it's a slightly higher ingredient and slightly higher quality than a steak and shake. Uh, and uh, they also make custard. Oh my god! The perfect weapon. And it's a mid, it's a midwestern thing. Yeah, it, apparently it's a it's a Wisconsin thing. Um, okay. And they have slowly branched out. Yeah, fuck Mexican food. Come and have a butter burger. <laughs> I agree. Fuck Mexican food. I would I would do that. You know what? You should bring me there. We should find some way to make it a thing. Let's do it. There's so many things we could do. Uh, I'm going to put for the show notes. Uh, I'm going to send Alex this link. Uh, it's an onion. It's an onion news network video uh, with the headline: "New wearable feed bags let Americans eat more, move less." Fast food giant <laughs> Yum Brands believes its new fast food feed bags will make it even easier for Americans to constantly be eating. <laughs> I'm also just. I added a link for Hamburger University. I also like the fact that Alex not only knows that Hamburger University exists, but knows things about the background of it. She's probably the only person that knows this much about Hamburger <laughs> University who's never had a McDonald's hamburger. I just watch a lot of documentaries, Merlin. I, I would be all. legitimately very excited to have the opportunity to go to Hamburger University just as a one-off thing. Maybe there's some McDonald's executive listening to our podcast. Please invite me. Please make a, a special exception to your th- to whatever your policies are to allow me to go to Hamburger University. I feel like I would learn a lot from it. I want to. I want to go too. Can we do it like pass fail? Maybe could we just go in and like an audit? You know, audit a class. Uh, does it? Are you? I can't. I'm. I'm unironically very interested to go to Hamburger University. I feel like I'd really learn some stuff. I'm uh, somewhat ironically uh, interested in it, but I could be talked into it. I, no, you know what? You should go. You should be our emissary. You should be the one who goes and gets the initial wisdom and passes it on to us. Merlin, when you when you worked at McDonald's, was that when yes. you had a boss that told you time to lean, time to clean? Oh yeah, you know it, buddy. You got time to lean, you got time to clean. I had my supervisor at Radio Shack used to tell me that. Oh dear, time to lean. Do you really want to? Are there that many things to clean at Radio Shack? 
constantly. All the job at Radio Shack is is selling uh, cell phones and batteries to old people and dusting. Just constantly. Or, and also, like, here's the thing is. Would you like the insurance on this nine volts? <laughs> I think we could have done that. Uh, but uh, people will con- the animals would constantly come into the store and they take something off the pegboard and put it on the other peg and then you have to get the little diagram out and line oh, it up. Oh, that's, just- that's that's my wife. She's the worst. She never <laughs> yeah, puts things could back have done that. she takes them off. Uh, but uh, co- people will con- the animals would constantly come into the store and they take something off the pegboard and put it on the other peg and then you have to get the little diagram out and line it up. Just mm. I worked at McDonald's uh, starting when as when I was a senior. And I remember at the time around prom, I was working at McDonald's. That after I graduated that summer, that was the summer that Live Aid was on. I had my I brought my boombox to work with me, and I would run back periodically and pause or unpause the cassette so I could record Live Aid on, onto my boombox. Uh, I I don't want to brag, uh, but I worked at McDonald's on the day that the MacDLT was introduced. What wow. is what is that? <sighs> It's it's the McDLT. It, it the hot stays hot and the cold stays fresh. It was there. It was there. So they were at this point. They were really hot and heavy against Burger King. Burger King was definitely on the ascent. They'd shaken off that whole herb thing, but they were really pushing the fact that you know have it your way, and that, that basically they had gotten it into the public mind that on the one hand Burger King was well maybe not the most healthy option, it was fresher and tastier than McDonald's, and McDonald's was facing a lot of kind of. The doldrums of like Wendy's at this point had gotten big. And so the way they went to distinguish themselves was with the McDLT. And that was a, I, I think it was a quarter pounder sized burger. But so the burger and the cheese were on the crown over here in this piece of styrofoam. And then the heel and the fixins were over in this side. And the idea was <laughs> this is their innovation the McDLT, the hot stays hot and the cold stays fresh. <laughs> What so, a crazy giant thing to piece want. of star giant piece of styrofoam. <laughs> what else was different about it? I think it had different onions. It had real onions instead of dehydrated onions. Um, but it, it required oh and you know what it had? Holy crap, it had mayonnaise on it. So when you need a new chunk chunk squirter uh to, to, to for that. <laughs> chunk chunk squirt. And uh yeah, so I was trained on that. My friend Pat Rothfuss worked at uh, Taco Bell for many years in Wisconsin. And he said that the way that they apply the ground beef uh, from the Taco Bell to the taco is it's extruded through like a caulk gun. And you get the, you get the right portion sizes probably, right? Uh, yep, that's the idea. That Somehow that's very upsetting to me. If you come here, I'm going to take you to our KFC slash Taco Bell, which is run by a lady named Paulette, who is not going to take any shit from anybody. You're on a first name basis? Pa- oh, yeah. Are okay. you kidding me? She, she calls me Bob. I call her Paulette. Like okay. everybody in every restaurant, they call me Bob because that's the name I give. She goes, hi, hey, Bob. How's your little girl? She's good. She's good. Can I have this awful thing that's going to make me fall asleep and cry? Yeah, all right. She's just she's, she's an African-American lady. She's like six feet tall. She weighs about four bucks, and she is so fucking angry all, all the time. She's just screaming. At, don't, hey, listen. If anybody's listening, don't get Paulette in trouble because she's an American treasure. And uh, I want to take you there because she's so mad all, all the time. You go there, you come up, you come to the, and if you don't know how, she's like the soup Nazi. If you don't know how to order with Paulette, man, you are going to be in trouble. You walk, she says, what do you have? And somebody goes, um, I want, can I have the box of the fried chicken? I'm already scared of and immensely respect Paulette. Oh man, Paulette, she brooks no truck. That lady fucking throws down. She's just screaming in the back. 
I'm gonna get more popcorn chicken. She's she's so angry, and uh, she is some. Paul Allen should make a museum about her. She is incredible. There should be Paulette University where you just learn to just take no shit like Paulette. She just she'll sit there on a stool and just scream at people, and it's so goddamn amusing. She's worked there for years. I have no idea why she still has that job, but she's an absolute delight. That see, there's still diversity in the biome. There's still even in a, in a place like a KFC slash Taco Bell, which my friend Scott Simpson just abbreviates as hell. This episode of Top Scallops and every episode of Top Scallops is sponsored by our friends at Backblaze. <laughs> Backblaze is the unlimited, unthrottled backup solution for your Mac or PC. Uh, the way it works is very simple. It's a little application. Uh, you put it on your Mac, and it just silently backs up all of your stuff. Uh, I, in my case, I have it set to backup while I sleep. And uh, it's total peace of mind. It just works. It was made by ex-Apple engineers, so the product sense is really solid. You just install this thing once, and you never really have to think about it until you desperately, urgently need it because you screwed something up or someone spilled a drink on your computer uh, or your computer got stolen. And then you know that uh, your work, uh, up to the minute if you want, is uh, just stored up on the cloud. You can use their native apps for Android and iOS to get your stuff. Or if uh, the uh, uh, stuff really hits the fan, I guess we can we can custom sponsor it. If the shit really hits the fan, you can uh, they'll send you a hard drive full of uh, your files. Uh, and you can uh, restore from backup right from that hard drive. It's an amazing service. Uh, I believe uh, uh, Chef Man and I both use it. Yes, I do. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a mega fan, and uh, I, I, I love how uh, uninvasive it is, and I love how much it is so right there the second I need it. They have. Uh, I just saw today uh, our, our friend Yev posted on Twitter a new program where – so it used to be if you needed to restore from – if you wanted them to put your entire backup on a hard drive and send it to you so you could restore from backup, you had to buy the hard drive. And they just announced today a new program where if you need to do that, you can now return the hard drive, and they uh, refund the whole cost of that. So it is uh, an even better service. And this is another th- cool thing about Backblaze. Like, it's constantly getting better, and not in a loud way where I have to like make a lot of new decisions or update the software or pay attention to it a lot. Uh, it's just uh, whenever I go to check on it f- uh, to make sure everything's uh, working, there's uh, a couple new features in there. It's, it's uh, growing really quickly and always getting better. And here's the best part. Backblaze is offering a free trial for listeners of the Top Scallops podcast, which is available at backblaze.com slash scallops. And uh, our thanks to Backblaze for uh, sponsoring the podcast. Thanks, Blackblaze. Time to lean. Time to back up. Three chefs remain. Wow. Interesting to hear you had mixed feelings about this episode. I felt that this was the best episode of the season for for me. What? Really? Yeah. Why? So, so here's what I liked. In the, hmm. uh, in the quick fire, I liked that it was a straightforward cooking challenge with a, with a good realistic constraint where I was like very interested in how the chefs handled this restraint. And it's a rule you could understand. The thing was, I, the thing I love about it, you're right. It's, it's brilliant. It's exactly like a perfect number of people to have this kind of challenge for. Uh, and I, I love that it's completely unambiguous what the rules are. It was one of the first times. So A, it was one of the first times they let the chefs cook pretty much whatever they wanted. And uh, B, I thought uh, I like seeing people do well. Like I, I thought pretty much everyone except uh, for my boy uh, Kwame. Mm. Uh, it was a rough week for me. I did not like seeing Kwame uh, stumble. But I thought everyone else uh, rose to the occasion really nicely. And I thought all of the food looked really good. And, and uh, it made me happy and it made me feel like uh, everything is, is okay. And that's why I watched Top Chef. Uh, I... 
I you know you you guys know how I feel about. Am I allowed to say you guys? I don't I don't even know. Uh, well, we are guys. I'm trying yeah. to stop. I'm trying I, to stop. Man. I would prefer to be called a dude bro. Uh, you you dude bros <laughs> seem to be. I prefer <laughs> I prefer to be called a thought leader. So you as a productivity guru and Max as a thought leader uh, seem to really like Philip and his man bun. And I just this he just keeps on piling on uh, where he got mad again like. Because he wasn't, he's like, I keep making good food, and the judges keep not liking it. And I, I don't know. There's just this sense of arrogance that, like, you can say that it's uh, just editing, but, like, to say to the judge's face, um, well, I, I just want to make, at first I was making my own food, but now I'm making food that the judges want to see. And I, I don't know. It just felt so just gross and what i love about top chef is seeing people make their own food and really caring about it um which like max said is why i did like this quick fire can i defend myself with regards to philip um very quickly it's it's a strong characterization to say that i like philip um but i sympathize with him and and it took me until richard blaze you know said this said as much a couple episodes ago but I have a strange sympathy for Philip because I've been him at various points. I've been I've become aware of myself as Philip at various points in my life, where mm-hmm. I realize that I am taking myself very seriously, and I'm making these these there may be some like grandiosity, like I'm making these big serious statements, and ultimately I'm sort of um, being a um, a, a dingling. Um, I became uh, uh, and I had a I had sort of a, a painful like I was listening to. Your Merlin, your uh, back to work program. As you know, I listen to your back to work program about a uh, one month delay uh, um, b- uh, because of uh, the number of podcasts I listen to. But I li- just listened to the episode about being busy versus time constrained, which uh, an a absolutely fascinating, excellent episode of the show. But also, like, boy, is that me to a T? Like the idea of like being busy as a status symbol and treating people poorly as a result of you know this alleged busyness and uh i don't know it just really i was a, it was one of those things of like oh my god i'm philip yeah i mean thank you and uh i like that i like that concept too uh and i but i almost sympathetic about the philip thing philip philip is young and he seems young in the same way in, in some similar ways to how angelina seems young philip seems like the guy everybody in his family tells him that he's really smart and handsome and then when he's picked to be like assistant editor of the newspaper he gets mad like he's he really he has a sense of almost of entitlement where he feels like he studied really hard for the test and now he should always get an A. And that's not how it works in life. And I, I know he probably knows that. But does he know, no, know that? No, he doesn't, because otherwise he wouldn't keep oscillating by, you know, kind of running around and acting like Donald Trump and saying, well, you know, then I'll say this. I'll say this to make you like me now. You know, that's he's young. He's young. But and he's got some he's obviously got talents for somebody that his age. He is capable of executing some great stuff. He's not a great editor. He's not great at editing either uh, his thoughts or in the way that he he executes on the show. But, yeah, I, I, I get that, too. I get that about him. But, you know, I think, you know, this show uh is not fun unless there's a lot of different types of people. And, I mean, there's only so much, like, real diversity you, you can and will have. But I think having somebody on, like him on the show makes it fun. You know, if it was all just, like, 12 chads, this would not be a fun show. <laughs> 12, 12 chads. Did you – so, Merlin, who did you do the, the Top Dress podcast with? Was it, 
was it Jim Dalrymple or I can't remember. <laughs> no, Andy and <laughs> Andy and thank you. I knew it was one of your other. I would, I would love to sit and watch an episode of Top Dress with Jim Dalrymple. Yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, maybe eighteen minutes in, there's not any ACDC in this at all. Uh, no, 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 you're right. Uh, so uh, Merle, Merlin did the the Top Dress show with uh, Andy Anaka, which I think Alex you you listened to as well. And like they made this great point in there of like. It is one of the as much as these shows have their feel good moments. It is one of the cruelties of the show that they're you know they're they're casting who they think is going to be in the end. You know who who are the people who are going to rise to the top and be in the finale, but they're also casting you know the obstacles that those people have to overcome on their journey. And and I think they cast a bunch of dinglings in these shows for entertainment purposes, and because it's like also in order for um, you know the Odyssey to happen, it's like you have to have the Cyclops and the Siren and the monsters that they that they conquer. And it's not always necessarily nice to the dinglings who get cast in in the show. Uh, there's lots of there's at least a couple of levels that I dissect this on, and I think this is entirely uh, appropriate and proper uh, for the show. Uh, one is that okay, as far as Philip. Uh, start with particulars. Philip is a noisome character because he, you know, I'm I, you know, I'm 49. I'm trying not to say things like millennial, but he is he is like a lot of what a lot of people think of as like the douchebaggery of America's cities is evident in somebody like Philip. Philip, who has who looks really cool when he lets his hair down. He's got a kind of like sexy surfing Jesus thing going on, but he wears it in that man bun thing that even he is going to be embarrassed about in a year. Whatever, that's all fine. He's also he's a name dropper. He is a self promoter, and he's interested in name dropping and self promoting around stuff like social media and blogs, which makes him double triple douchey in a lot of ways. And the way that he keeps, you know, and I'm, I don't think you could cast him this way unless he actually did this, where he's very into like talking about who is. He sounds like somebody at a party talking about his clout score. We just want to punch <laughs> him in the throat. You're like, well, you, you know that like like. The more you learn about that, the worse of a human being you become. You you know that that's not actually a thing, right? But but he keeps talking about that. So on the one hand, like yeah, they're setting him up to be that way. But on the other hand, let's take it for a moment that like people people need somebody to like whatever. Who's that lady with the uh, with the weird spray on tan on the MTV show, the, the New Jersey show? Like you need somebody who's like the stooge of the show. So he is kind of the stooge of the show. It probably doesn't hurt also that I'll bet he's using a lot of social media. He might be recognizable. And so, but there's a somewhat cumulative, there could be a cumulative effect of people being aware of him as, as a douchey L.A. blogger chef. And maybe that helps the show. I don't know. Now, as far as the other part of this, um, I, uh, you know, I, I, it's, I think we've talked about the Hunger Games on here before. Hunger Games, not, not a perfect book, not a perfect movie. Awfully similar to Battle Royale, but we'll leave that for another day. But the thing that, that makes – that I enjoy so much about the first Hunger Games movie is it was a very different movie than I expected. I went into it thinking it's going to be the tale uh, of uh, you know the lady uh, Mystique from the X-Men movies. She's got a bow. I know she's poor. And you get into her and her story with her family. The thing that made that show – that movie so fun to me is the reality show aspect of that. And you think about uh, – without spoiling the movie, there's a – the way that you get called as a tribute, so God, how do I say this? So basically, once a year, a bunch of teenagers get chosen by lottery, with increasing chance that they'll be called every year, uh, to go and fight each other to the death. And there's always the chance, though, that somebody who's like a real shrimpy little like fifth grade kid is going to get picked and have to fight against people who are like trained warriors from a much better funded district. I mean, fair enough so far. Yep. Okay, so the thing is, if it was all big, beefy warrior seniors in high school who all knew how to use a staff and a chainsaw and a crossbow, 
Well, now you're you're talking about like uh, you know that American Super Fighter show or something. You're talking about pro wrestling. What makes that into a story is it could also be a very relatable, not that strong fifth grader having to fight them. Now you got a story because now you got odds and now you've got all of these things and having to fight and scrap. And that's why you have an Angelina. I mean, they, they, they know how, who these people are and what they're capable of. They could go and pick all people who are like the best at what they do, but that's a different show. You, you, I mean, you also, you also audition with a video. And in some seasons, they, sh they show, they cut the audition videos into the episodes. So, I love that on Top Dress. Those videos are always a riot. Yeah, but it's like they're casting half for their prestige and their awards and their abilities as a chef and half for their personality and how they come across on the video. That's why they make you submit a video. But anyway, I guess all I'm trying to say is that, you know, there there has to be the right mix. If it was all dinglings, it wouldn't be fun. And if it was all just incredibly mature people at the top of their game, uh, it wouldn't be that fun either. There has to be a little bit of both. It's just that the part where this becomes annoying is when somebody is obviously the super stooge or in a case of this week where it's so we talked last night uh, offline about the Cyrus Dewey Awards. When you get into one of these very <laughs> special episodes where, like, poor Jason, watching the dissolution of Jason over the last five episodes has been kind of excruciating because, like, I'm very sympathetic to him, but he's also so annoying and and so apparently not self-aware. <laughs> you know, here's here's the thing. Yeah. Like, uh, if you're that sensitive, uh, don't be on a TV show. Yep. That... <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. It just and w that, that's when you see the seams, though. And in one, one like this, it's the tenth anniversary, tenth anniversary stuff. We should also eventually tell them what the quickfire challenge was. Um, but you know, the whole point of this was to be all emo. That was the whole point of the whole episode. What are you eating? Do you have a drink? Is that mm, your Coca-Cola? Mm. So the quick fire challenge, quick fire. This was the uh, ten ingredient quick fire challenge. As far as I remember, this is the first time this has been done on the show. Uh, I love this quick fire format. Basically, each of the chefs, uh, there's ten remaining chefs, and each of the chefs gets twenty seconds, and they get to run into the kitchen and grab one ingredient, and they bring it out and they put it on a table. And at the end, there's ten ingredients, and that's all the chefs have to cook with. Um, no jokes, no tricks, no switch em ups. Yep. It isn't something where you don't know what everybody else has chosen, right? Yep. I mean, there's all kinds of ways they could screw up this challenge in the interest of making it wackier. Mm -hmm. But it's totally straightforward. First person, uh, uh, Dingling, runs over, and just like I said, it, I, I said to my wife, I'm just saying, he's going to pick steak. He's going to pick steak. He's going to pick steak. Because he always picks steak. Uh, Philip, Philip? Yeah. Philip? Yeah, I think Philip so. Philip picks prime uh, sirloin. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Amar? Isaac? Isaac, who ran? Who went over and got? Uh, Didn't I thought, oh, it was Isaac. I think it was Isaac got the chicken. Cage Man Five Thousand. Yeah, and and it was a sort of a head scratcher of like, why is he getting chicken they, when they just got the steak? Not nearly as head scratchy as Jason, but they did all run and they got great stuff. So you got you got steak, you got mushrooms, you got who got, uh, who Morton, got the salt? That person Morton's is, Morton's brand kosher salt. I think so. I mean, it was like a, it w that was such a smart move. Like that's the kind of thing where I wouldn't have thought of it until it was too late. I, I love how in two nearly contiguous shots, you get a giant shot of the Morton's kosher salt logo, <laughs> and the next one is um, rice vinegar with uh, tape over the label. No, that's not a product placement. That's a non-product non-placement. And then uh, handsome Carl brings over tomatoes. This is this is going great. Did you, Merlin? I'm sorry. To, I know we need to talk about the episode, but did you know a fun <laughs> fact is that the Morton Salt um, factory? I don't know. The Morton Salt house is uh, like two buildings down from us. Okay. First of all, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. 
Isn't that interesting? That's amazing. Last, I have that very box in my home. Oh, I do too. It's the it's when the, it's half empty. I order another. It's one. our nation's leading uh, girl with an umbrella assault product. Mazeltov. Last year, uh, there was an incident wherein so so when you go by the highway by this building, which I've gone on my entire life, you know, going going to downtown Chicago, you go past this huge airplane hangar with the Morton Salt girl on it. And when I was a kid, I always imagined that that building was full to the brim of salt. How could you not? It was so delightful as a kid. I was like, that building is full of salt. And then I that's grew where, up. That's, and where I was, they keep, that's where they keep the salt. That's where the salt lives. And then I got older, and I was like, that's ridiculous. It's not full. Obviously, it's not full of salt. There's people working in there. Then last year, the building burst open, and salt flowed out of the building. There was a massive salt spill. And it, I saw a video of this. That like a, a construction equipment hit it or something? I don't know. I think it collapsed. And oh, these, that's a shame. And it spilled onto a car dealership next door. So there were all of these brand new cars just covered in salt. And it turns out that I was right when I was a kid. That building is just full to the brim of salt. It was so delightful. And the other great thing was the city fire inspector came out and did a press conference. And someone asked, why did the building collapse? And he said, it appears to be a case of too much salt and not enough wall. All right, so the uh, so the quick fire. They did the ten ingredients. We're not done yet. We're not done. Because, oh right. Oh no, because this is what what they we in the business call foreshadowing. Okay, dingling foreshadowing. Okay, so every chef has gone and gotten like a they've worked together essentially a jalapeno, garlic, mushroom, two proteins. Uh, rice vinegar. It's all great, great, great. Now there's only one pick left. You got 20 seconds to run over and pick the one thing that's going to be. Are you going? Is it going to be somebody who gets a, an aromatic herb? Will it be a spice that we could all enjoy in this? No. Jason runs over and grabs celery. That was a little weird. The tenth item, last item you grab is celery. Yeah. What does celery do for any of those dishes? And now you got to go like, oh, you got to braise celery and shit. Like, who bring? Who gets celery? What is that? I think he. My my guess was that Jason was looking at those dishes. I mean, so here's what I what I like. Here's what I hope. I hope he was looking at those ingredients and he was like, "There's a dish I want to make, but I just need the celery." And and in which case, it's a great pick because everyone else was confused uh, by it. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, like to me, it seems like maybe I don't know. I'm thinking. Uh, parsley, cilantro, or onion could have been handy. Well, for, it could have been handy for everyone, but but maybe the celery gave Jason um, oh, just the edge he needed He's, to not right. win to not win the uh, quick fire. My goodness! All right, I'm done with that. Uh, who didn't share their tomatoes? That was the other big drama. There was two people. Um, uh, beardy, beardy, non drink wouldn't share his, and uh, handsome Carl was was tomato hoarding. That's right. And then Padma, and then was it Padma or? or uh, 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 the guest judge, uh, who's not Angelina. Uh, oh, uh, Antonia? Antonia was like, too much tomato. Oh, no, it was Padma that said, for a salad, was it for for a beef and a salad, I really didn't get as much of the steak as I'd like. Yeah. And then, oh, no, and then uh, uh, Antonia at one point was like, there's the not the right ratio of like meat to tomato here, to the guy who didn't share his tomatoes. <laughs> In your face. Is he the one who made, he made caviar out of tomato? Was that him? It was like a... I don't remember what made the... seed, seeds. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, it was it was good. I, I, I personally, I just would like to endorse more of this kind of challenge. I I, uh, I liked it. Uh, so let's see. Then they get to the uh, elimination challenge. The elimination challenge this week, they have to cook a dish because it's the tenth anniversary of Top Chef. They have to cook a dish where uh, that uh, that represented where they were ten years ago. And we got some nice uh, stories from the chefs. They uh, went to Whole Foods. I did notice this week. 
this is the first time I have noticed that they did not close the Whole Foods when the chefs went shopping. There were just other people shopping in that Whole Foods. Huh. I wonder if it's because it's L.A., and in L.A. you just expect a film shoot to be happening everywhere you go. Hmm. Interesting, because I have noticed they do seem pretty empty when they're shopping most of the time. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure when they normally when they go, when they have the chefs like ransack a Whole Foods and they're knocking over store displays and stuff, I think they close the store to film there. Yeah, makes sense. But maybe L.A. was like, they're like, man, we don't really need to close it because everyone here is understands that you're going to be an extra and everything everywhere you go. Uh, Merlin, you didn't like this challenge? <sighs> Someday I want to talk about inspiration okay. on this show. Okay. It's, a, it's an evergreen uh, bullet on our topic list. But, but I, I, um, I push back against um, the idea of things like inspiration because I don't think it means what most people think it means. And, and when you're on Top Dress and they want you to be inspired by a bridge or when you're on Top Chef and they want you or like, you know, be inspired by a museum or be inspired. Like, that's not what inspiration is. That's having an idea based on something. That's not inspiration. And by, by the same token, I'm not persuaded that like I, I realize that in this challenge, you've just got to like grin and bear it because that's the challenge. But the idea of like this whole like self-serving, it's our 10th anniversary. Let's have lots of like, uh, you know, and some of that stuff was fun. I would do that as maybe as a special instead of as like making it part of the challenge. But like it just really seemed like a pretty bald, very special episode attempt that I thought was from silly to off topic too vaguely offensive not offensive but like ugh, gross you know what i mean i don't know i I don't know some people took it creatively but like again there's always going to be people who take that inspiration stuff literally and it gets cute and either gets cute or in this case it gets painful and i I thought it was kind of hard to watch at points Hmm. Uh, what What do you think you you liked it i was into it i like when the chefs get to to creatively take control of their own destiny but i can i can i i I think we should get into the inspiration thing i'm i'm curious about this like what so so i see where on on like like i'm thinking about the bridges episode two because that was an interesting one um of uh of top dress where they're like make a dress inspired by these bridges and the dress and the one and the woman who happened to win it won it with a completely costumey outfit that would have gotten savaged any other challenge but it just happened to be the one that looked most like a bridge, so she won. So, <laughs> just like in fashion. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, I know. I mean, I feel like there's something here. But what is it that is it that? I mean, uh, is it that it brings out? Is it the thing that bothers you that it brings out the uncomfortable, like falseness of the premise of like that that the that there is a fair judging of art of it's like that you can compare two pieces of art and pick the winner. Not really. It's it, it goes back to my former uh, vocation as a make believe productivity guru, where you know a challenge that I tried to talk other people something I tried to talk other people out of because I had learned to talk myself out of it was starting to think that inspiration was the spark for making things that because I think we get sold a bill of goods uh, in this country and we have for years maybe maybe all over the world but we're taught to like look at all of these people who are successful artists and want to be inspired by the work that, that they do, where we were taught to be inspired by things like events in our life. And I think it's bullshit because I think, you know, to think of inspiration in that way is killing the creative spirits of a lot of people because they're basically being asked to use a nail file to try and fix a car. Hmm. And it's not how it works. The way that you do the inspiration that you need is to go the inspiration that the inspiration that can set something off is to realize how hard you're willing to work and how much you're willing to sacrifice in order to figure out if this is right for you and whether you can or will get good at this. 
it's work. All of these things are work. And it's it, it just, I don't know, I, I have an irrationally strong emotional response when people talk about inspiration because I've seen how corrosive it is. Where I see people who are having trouble getting anything that they don't have to do in life accomplished, right? There's stuff you have to do. You have to get your kids dressed for school. You have to take a dump. You've got to do all this stuff. But what about the stuff you don't have to have to do? That's where stuff just slides off the plate because people think they don't have the inspiration that they need. And my, my counsel is, no, you don't need inspiration. You need to sit down and do it. And you will find things to be inspired about. If you work at something long enough, you will find a way. You, first of all, you realize whether it's for you. That's important. Because just deciding that like, you like this Doctor Who episode with Vincent Van Gogh makes you want to be a painter. Wow. Okay. That works for my eight-year-old daughter, but that is not a grown-ass person thing to do. You've got to set yourself to the task of like learning what this thing is, getting good at it, trying it, seeing if it's the right thing for you, which means trying it past the point when it gets a little bit inconvenient to do. It means doing it every day. It means you're not even qualified to decide whether this is right for you unless you've done it enough to really know. Then when you do really know it, you do it long enough, you work with people who know what they're doing, and you start to understand that there is a way to get good at this, but it's non-obvious unless you actually do the work. So then what do you do? You take all these people who are talented at what they do, and you say, oh, go look at this uh, Roman statue and be inspired to design fashions based on that. So some dinglings are going to basically make a pattern with statues on it. Other people, it's, it's all so on the nose. And so on the one hand, it makes a dumb challenge because we all know that's bullshit, anybody who actually makes stuff. But I hate the message this continues to send to people, especially young people, that life is about buying a funny hat and a moleskin notebook. Like we've got to stop telling people that. We've got to tell people, go and put yourself in situations with people who are good at something. You'll find out if you're good at it. You'll find out what to spend and not spend your time on. And you'll be inspired by all kinds of things once you get the skills to do that. I'll shut up now. It just bugs me, and it's always bugged me. It bugs me because it's corrosive and because it is utterly at odds with how people who make creative things actually operate. So th- th- there's a, this reminds me a little bit. Um, I, I'm just curious about, about maybe there's a ch- – trying to, trying to connect this to, to Top Chef for me. Um, there's a point that uh, the designer uh, Mike Montero makes where he says, for, for a long time there was this myth of the auteur artist designer. And, where, and here was the story you would hear is like uh, a client would uh, say we have this problem and the artist would like close their eyes and meditate on it and they would become inspired and they would have a vision of how it should be and they would they would execute <laughs> like their on, vision like on mad men like on mad men like don, don draper would take down a, for he, a few minutes he would take a nap <laughs> right you know right he would get drunk and take a nap and he would become inspired and because he was an artist and a visionary uh it would f- uh, appear to him and he would pitch it and it would be this uh, sort of heroic special thing and it was m- sort of in this instance it is wrong for the client to change that work because they're like you know, interfering in the divine intervention of the idea and the dignity of the idea. And a lot of designers feel that way. They get flustered when people critique their work. They don't understand how to take a note. They feel like um, the, the idea is only going to happen once and it's this precious thing that has to be defended and you should always push back to fight for the idea. And Mike's whole thing is like, uh, that's all nonsense. Nobody knows what they're doing. There is no auteur. There is no visionary. It's just a process of it sucks and then it gets better and you do it over and over and over again. And the idea is totally fungible. The inspiration is totally fungible. You can throw it out and replace it with something else and iterate, 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 keep working, keep working, keep working. And uh, on the one hand, designers don't like this because it makes design less special and intellectual and visionary and, and there takes the magic out of it. But on the other hand, it sounds a lot more like something you can charge money for. 
Well, yeah, and if, in some, with some of the cases I've worked with Mike, uh, and working with Mike, who's a horrible human being, my kid, um, he's you know he's a, he's a pretty like he's a funny internet personality, but he's actually a very, a very sweet and kind and thoughtful guy, and probably one of the best client services people I've ever met in my life. And if you've ever had to do client services, you know it ain't easy. But he is he's a great listener. He's a very hard worker. He's smart at synthesizing information, and in this case, I think he's kind of nailing it. Um, what you can charge a lot for is the kinds of things you know tend not to work and the things that might work, and then learning how to adapt that depending on what somebody's actual needs are in the context of the time and the budget. Boy, that's a whole lot of stuff to get good at. Can I do that in a month? Nope. <laughs> no way are you going to do that. In passing, I'm going to mention a book I like called The Creative Habit uh, by Twyla Tharp. I think it's mostly ghostwritten, but it's a really good book uh, about the creative habit. It's about like the way that she works, and it's not to say work like me, but it's you know you. The, way, the role of inspiration for her is inside of a career where she's always doing several things at once all the time. So it's where I learned about using banker's boxes for stuff. Like, oh, boy, this inspires me in some way. I'll throw this in the box for this project, and then I'm going to think about it later. Like, you know, it, does, it doesn't mean uh, going on a – like walking with wolves on a vision quest for six weeks every time you find a poster that inspires you. It means you keep working, 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 and like you're constantly adding fuel to that. But I mean, I'm thinking, for some reason, I'm thinking about Stanley Kubrick. And like, everybody likes to look at Stanley Kubrick and go, like, you know, oh, Stanley Kubrick, like, you know, oh, he's, he had this, he has this vision and he's going to make this kind of thing. And like, go watch a documentary about Stanley Kubrick. Cause like, what he is is a guy who worked impossibly, ridiculously, unnecessarily hard. He did so many things the hard way. He was hard on his actors. He was, he was hard on his production staff. But he also was a guy who knew whereof he spoke. He was a writer. Right, he wasn't just a director; he was also a writer. He also did things with music and being able to to write and edit music. He knew everything about cameras. He's a you know in his former career a photographer. Like Stanley Kubrick is kind of like the ultimate director in some ways because he knows a lot about every one of those jobs. Hmm. And even if he isn't the best in the world at doing that job, he understands that job. So did he get that out of buying a beret? No, <laughs> like he got that out of working really hard for a very long time. And, and simultaneously, like the the Kubrick thing that 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 always sticks out to me, and this is also kind of the Steve Jobs thing. It's like, was were those guys creative geniuses because they were assholes to people? Oh, oh, like you know what, what I'm saying? What, like, caused, what caused what? Yeah, it, no, it's the opposite. It's that they were. Oh, it's the what caused what? Well, it's not even a what caused what. It may just be that they were assholes and they were good at what they did. But I think a lot of people. I think there's some. I think there's this idea of like, oh, you have to treat people poorly and, and be an asshole and be really abrasive, oh, right. right? And that's the thing that will lead to greatness is like never compromising, never. Oh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know about that. I don't think that's true. It just it depends a lot on how you like to work. Hearing interviews with um, Vance, Vince Gilligan, is that the guy who did uh, Breaking Bad? Yes. I mean, you took a guy like that, and it really sounds like, at least in his telling of it, and who knows, that like being in the writer's room on that show, it's an incredibly collaborative effort. And by, by design, he does something unusual in that he goes out of his way to make sure there's not one name or imprimatur on a script. He wants everybody's hands on it. That's the thing, you know, that's the difference in style. Some people are different, like Stephen Moffat. Everything Stephen Moffat does is going to feel a little bit like Stephen Moffat, even if he didn't direct and write it. That's his job as the showrunner is to be the filter for uh, up to this next season anyway, the um, showrunner of Doctor Who. It all goes through the Stephen Moffat filter, and that's how he rolls. Can I throw out, I have uh, one piece of uh, reading that I think you'll, you'll really dig, and uh, maybe we can talk about it next week. Um, so this is uh, my friend Javier uh, Grillo Marx watch who's a television writer and occasional showrunner, 
wrote a, a document that he posted online uh, this week called The 11 Rules of Being a Showrunner. And it's sort of abstract. I mean, it's very specific advice about how to run a writer's room and, and deal with personalities and bring people together and how to strike the balance between everyone having their um, creative side, you know, their, their creative input into the show and then also having it represent the vision of the showrunner. But it's very easily abstractable to pretty much any enterprise. And I, this was another one. This was the second thing that I read this week or, or listened to this week where I was like, oh, my God, I'm Philip. Like, I read this and I saw so many things where I was like, I, if I'm being honest with myself, I make these mistakes every day and it's very unattractive. Uh, yeah, put that in the show notes. I, I, would, I would love to read that. For some reason, in getting, getting ready for this and thinking about this, final thing on this, is like I'm sorry to go off on the rant on inspiration, but there's something where I feel like there aren't enough people out there calling bullshit on this kind of stuff. And that's why I, f- I feel the need to do that. There's plenty of other people out there who will give you 11 ways to be inspired today or 17 ways to be inspired. You, you will find that lots of places. What you're less likely to find is somebody who has nothing to gain from telling you that's utter horseshit. And that, like, get good at the craft, and like, you will find things to be inspired about. But isn't that isn't that a little bit of maybe why it's so frustrating when this comes up on a show like Top Chef and, and Top Dress? Because these are shows that, at their core, what I, I think what I like about them is they're it's all process driven. It's all iteration. It's like, and you can see these people get better as the season goes, just because they're doing the craft every day, day after day after yeah. day. And instead of taking that lesson away and being like, it's all about repetition, it's all about practice, it's all about just doing it, and the inspiration will come from just the repetition and the practice, they're like, look, you know, they're like, uh, think about your father and make a dish. You know, it's like, it's sort of the wrong, it's it's a little bit of a misread of what's special about the show. Well, yeah, I agree. And I think it's why, I, I, I don't know if all three of us, but at least you and me tend to really prefer the ones that where there's, there's, you know, a twist or a rule or something just to keep it interesting, but then you get to execute in some in some kind of an interesting way. So, for example, uh, like on Top Dress, uh, you know, I love Marvel Comics. And so I was really excited when they had this episode that was going to be about Marvel Comics because I'd seen, like, Hawkeye and stuff. I was like, oh, my God, that's totally David Aha's Hawkeye. And, and, like, that, that's going to be incredible. But the, the, the show was, was kind of a mess, like, trying to, like, make clothes inspired by Marvel characters. It's like... And then they're all in there with their reckons about what the characters are like. And I think she'd be like this. And it was just, it was awful. Because those kinds of challenges that ask you to do fairly literal things as the twist, like, how are you going to do great at that? Like, maybe you can, but like, you know, those are not the challenges we love. We love the challenges that ask you to work within a constraint, right? But to have access to good ingredients and techniques, like making food on a golf course, that's fun as a bit. But we're not really going to get to see them them shine. So I think that's why we tend to like those challenges. I, when I was, um, I wasn't initially going to go to college. There was no money. There was no interest. But I saw, you know, some people had really, some friends who had gone to this this school in Florida were like really cajoling me to like try. They're like, you know, it's an unconventional school. Even though you had terrible grades, you never know. We could try and work some angles, but you know, we would. Um, you should you should apply, and uh, I found out who knows how much it was collusion from my friends and their parents. But what I found out fairly quickly once I was accepted was that there was there were a couple things that got me in. Number two that got me in was that I was clearly clearly a smart guy who did not thrive in a Florida public school system and maybe could as a five percent or have a chance at this. Far and away, number one was my essay. Like I got into college on my essay. Uh, and I was not an extremely good writer, but I, here's, this is somewhat germane. So I knew I had to write an essay. I knew it would be important. So you know what the, the topic of my essay was, hmm. my first first draft? Hmm. Why I was against President Reagan's policy for supporting the Contras in Nicaragua. 
Mm-hmm. And would anyone in the audience like to guess how much I actually knew and understood about that? <laughs> Virtually nothing. So what I wrote was complete bullshit, eight, you know, 8% solution Marxist pap. It was terrible. It was awful. And then I thought, ugh, I can't do this. I can't, I've got to write something else. And so I went in the other direction. I went in the, in the very special episode direction, and I was going to write something about the dead people in my family. Because when you go to college, the first thing you do is write about dead people in your family because write reasons. It's, uh, it's, something you, it's one of the obvious things you get an emotional attachment to, and you feel like you're inoculated against criticism. Hmm. I would learn later that teachers don't like it when you do that, and they will tell you, please stop writing about things that you have too much emotional attachment to because I'm going to criticize that, and you're not going to like it. Hmm. So I threw that out. I thought, I can't write this. And so you know what I wrote? I wrote a five-page uh, essay about how I cracked my knuckles and how I made up this whole story about how my family was imagining that I was going to die, die alone and destitute with giant swollen knuckles because I kept cracking my knuckles. And so it was called Plum Knuckles. <laughs> and I submitted that, and they loved it. And it was all about like how all of my family members, how I was going di- to dishonor like generations of my family because I cracked my knuckles. Mm-hmm. And it was it was basically it was a Swiftian exaggeration essay that was pretty stupid but kind of funny for an eighteen year old. Mm-hmm. And that's what got me in. Did I get in with my opinions about the Contras? I did not. Did I get in with my opinions about my my, my dead family? Jesus Christ, thank you. No, I went to the one thing that I actually kind of knew that I could execute, which was a kind of funny satirical essay, and that's what got me in. Do you so do that, you have that somewhere? I hope not. Ooh, oh, you post that. Merlin. Post it online. It's, no, well, you, how I about was this? eighteen? How it's not this? that funny. Listen, listen, I listened to you read your dreams to John Syracuse. <laughs> I feel like. You need to. Me so. <laughs> I feel like you need to find this essay and read us an excerpt on this on this show. Um, includes sections about all the great Americans that never cracked their knuckles, and it, they became great probably because they didn't crack their knuckles. Anyway, well, um, what I'm trying to get at, I'm not sure what I'm trying to get at, but I think of that story a lot because I realized that at the times when I want to seem fancy, uh, at the times when I want to seem competent and smart i need to make sure that i'm really actually competent and smart about the topic before i go you know all the way in at the times when i want to be very emotionally resonant i will need to make sure that it is actually emotionally honest in its resonance and if you don't know if you can't be smart and you can't be honest you might as well be funny so that's my thing is like i can sometimes be funny by trying to like so that's me that when I, that when I watch top chef I hate to watch somebody who could be really great at this thing that they do and then expecting them to go up there and cry in order to like sell their food like that bugs me well can I can I bring this let me bring this back to the challenge because I had a note that was really something that was driving me crazy about this episode so someone I believe it was Chad uh, who said oh this is right yeah so it was Chad who was in the Navy I couldn't remember this a few weeks ago Chad went to the Navy because he said he wanted to, quote, kick whoever's ass, did whatever they did to us after 9-11, end quote. And uh, his story of where he was 10 years ago, he said he got out of the Navy and he went yep. to some beach. And, uh, after the Navy, he traveled to a place and he went to a beach and he tasted a fresh ceviche and it inspired him. And he's like, mm-hmm. so today I've made a fresh ceviche. And that's why I put my heavy metal band on MySpace. Uh, that, was pretty, that was pretty great. Uh, but uh, here's my thing. Real, couldn't you like let's really couldn't you just pick anything you wanted to cook and be like I was in the Navy and then I got out of the Navy and I tasted a hamburger I had a foie gras I had a pasta and it inspired right. me and that's what I've made prepared for you today 
Like, are they really going to, like, is someone going to get called out for that? Like, like, this is the thing that kind of bugs me about this challenge is, like, it really could become any, just cook anything and make a a story about how 10 years ago it meant something to you. Oh, unless, 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 unless it's the chef with ALS that that, that makes Tom cry. Mm -hmm. Like, that was sweet. It was actually a super sweet moment on the show. But, like, uh, Amar, Amar? Was was yes. working on his dish where he was making his lobster based on this guy that uh, that Michael Neck tattoo and and Tom Colicchio knew who had ALS and it was it was really really sweet and I actually thought you know what that's you know for this cheesy show that's pretty good until I got to the last frame of the episode mm-hmm. oh I did know did you get the last frame yeah, of the episode I did yeah 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 and this episode was in that guy's memory <sighs> it was a very special episode yeah give him a Cyrus Dewey everybody gets a Dewey. <laughs> I had not my shoes hurt. I had not seen that uh, that Mr. <laughs> Show clip that killed, that destroyed me last night. For for context at the time, we're talking about a bit on Mr. Show called the Cyrus Dewey Awards, which is an award for people who did very very brave roles as actors. And um, and it comes at the time though that like playing a developmentally disabled person or an ugly person could get you an Oscar. Like when was like maybe Monster hadn't happened yet, but I think Tom Hanks right had done Forrest Gump. You have, but it was basically it just seemed like every year the people who were winning Oscars were like famous actors, uh, uh, playing Dustin somebody Hoffman with problems for uh, Rain Man. Yeah, yeah. Play, playing with somebody with, with with problems and like doing a stretch roll, you know. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. It's just that ranks so like, ugh, God. You put up a you put up a grainy photo of somebody with ALS and it's in memory of them. It's like, ugh, God. <laughs> I think that's what I found so frustrating about this challenge. Like, I I thought it was excited uh, or exciting because I'm like, oh, they're all going to go and talk about like their culinary roots. Like, w- and almost all of them did that. And then some people did the very special ep- episode or my father doesn't love me anymore. It's it's um it's not it's not dignified and it's it's a you know what here's what feel it's a little sweaty because it's like you're you're taking. You know, your issues with your father and it's all culminated in winning a challenge in a cooking reality show. You know, it's like there's a little I don't know winning to winning the 10th anniversary episode, a a fairly meaningless milestone that's mostly just being used to hang some kind of a premise on. But then somebody has to actually sit up there and like talk about this, if true, like fairly, you know, painful, difficult stuff. And, you know, with, for example, like when Mondo won with his plus sign pattern on top dress did you ever see that episode yes that was a you know that to me walked right up to the line but i still thought it was very but he didn't didn't, actually can i tell you the thing that made that work was he did not tell the judges what it meant or at least in the edit as a piece of art it didn't it did not seem like he was working that and the reveal was exactly perfect. He, he had to explicitly one of the judges. I mean, he never brought it up. It was a good piece of clothing that he made that meant something to him, which is to me that it. You had, you had to come up with a basically as a pattern, like they had the HP pattern making machine. You had to make your own cloth with your own design of a pattern on it and then make a garment, right? That's right. And he it had to have some kind of a personal attachment for and, you. And uh, yeah, and Mondo, um, I, I think you learn in the interviews, he is HIV positive. He has not told his parents and, who are going to watch the show, and it may be when he's sort of comes out to them and he made a dress with these pluses on it and it was the i think it was the winning dress and it was a good dress and it looked good and he did the whole runway show the whole interview and right before he walked off stage one of the judges said oh yeah what was the meaning of those pluses and then there was this big moment of like he was like 
I, uh, it was a pattern I like. You know, they had to really push him to get it out, and then he told them, and it was a very moving, legitimate moment. But it was earned by the fact that he didn't parade out there and say, "I'm, I've made meaning out of this this thing, this this big piece of my life." Right? It was like it, to me that was a a, a true art, artistic yeah, and expression. He didn't, it isn't. I mean, like for example, like you know, hearing. I don't know. I mean, like you know, I. Hearing the Cajun man constantly talk about like the Cajun this and Cajun this and and just oh Cajun 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 get a bunch of Cajuns in a room and then oh let's bring in some Hurricane Katrina and it's like God well, well I, he, I can only take it's all legitimate but like in the aggregate it just becomes like a bunch of drunk freshmen talking about dead grandma. <laughs> On the other hand, he so Isaac did this challenge exactly how I would have done it, which is he I think he pretty clearly was like I'm gonna I really want to make gumbo. He did an upscale version of something he's good at. Yeah. Well, he's like, I want to make. Smart. He's like, I want to make gumbo. What can I think of about ten years ago that relates to gumbo? And went from there. And he's like, you know, ah, here's a story about gumbo that I can weave in. But it's like, if you work around food every day, yeah, you should be able to pretty much make any food you want with a connection to ten years ago. I, I think the clear heartbreaker in all of this was Kwame. I mean, on a couple levels. Well, the. He was. They were. He was. He was going to town on that mandolin, and I was watching him, and I was going. I wrote. I in my notes, I wrote this. I I, I said I really do not uh, like how Kwame is using the mandolin, and then pow, cuts his finger off, cuts the tip of his finger off. And the context here is that he's talking about ten years ago and this strained relationship that he had with his father. We know Kwame had a pretty rough start, and has made made a, a whole lot of himself in a short amount of time. He's obviously like a super competent. I mean, for his young age, he seems very. He's got his head about him. He's got he's a little bit libidinal, uh, which is fine for a young man. But he's uh, he seems like he's got his shit together. And then you know they're forcing him to dredge up the part of his life he spent years trying to put behind him. Merlin, it's the exact mandolin that I cut myself on. It's the light oh, green no. Behringer mandolin. This is like uh, deals in the flop house. Yeah, <laughs> this is like Dan and knee injuries. Yeah. You can't mention knee injuries around Dan. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, God, it killed. I mean, I know there were some other things happening in the episode. <laughs> you should have to cook on this show based on the painful memory of cutting your finger off with a mandolin. That would be your this is that would be your uh, last chance kitchen. Here's <clears throat> so here's here's what I took away from the from Kwame's story this week. You know, how I said um, a couple weeks ago, if I ever become cast on Top Chef before I ever go to the show, I I pr- I made a promise to myself that I will learn how to use a pressure cooker because I know it's going right. to come up and I'm going to say I wish I learned how to use a pressure cooker before I came on Top Chef. Here's the thing. Before you go on Top Chef, repair your father issues. It's going to come up. And maybe figure <laughs> out a, variations on a couple dishes that you could completely nail and have a great story for them. Just come up with some bullshit. It's like, uh, I went for a walk and I had this and it meant a lot to me. You're never going to get called on it. Oh, yeah. I was watching watching coverage of Hurricane K- Katrina and I made this macaroni and cheese. <laughs> it's like you're never going to get called on it. Also, my grandmother's dead. And so you get down to the wire. You get down to the wire. He's got his. Uh, he's got his broccoli. Frau Frau Farbissina did not like it. She was very upset. She she was not getting enough jerk. She was not getting enough jerk in her broccoli. Uh huh. Did she look like well, Frau Farbissina to you a little bit? It was yes. And uh, it, I would not. That was blood broccoli. I didn't. I mean, I was a little upset by that. If I gave my daughter just just the way that the broccoli itself looked. Mm-hmm. I mean that you know what that looked like? That looked like burnt broccoli is what it looked it, like. It did not it was not an attractive dish. <coughs> when Kwame was plating that dish, his little finger condom came out. Did you oh, see that? Right. And it was it was blood broccoli. Oh, I don't want to eat the I don't want to eat the blood broccoli. Merlin, I don't want the blood broccoli. 
Don't say the blood broccoli. Then they put it on some baby barf. Uh, what, is that? What, what do you have underneath uh, that? It was, uh, it was uh, I don't know. Padma said it was like oatmeal. Ugh. Oatmeal and blood broccoli. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I Here's the thing. Um, you guys listened to that Munchies episode where Gail talks about how they ultimately do usually get to make a decision about who goes home, right? And I think that Kwame, probably based on this dish, should have gone home. Um, but they knew that he was the more talented chef. Uh, because that plate was just, it looked like puke and then a little bit of broccoli on top. You know, Top Chef, maybe it needs the Tim Gunn save. Hmm. Because hmm. that could be interesting. <laughs> because then they could have the integrity to send Kwame home. And you could have the, uh, I don't know. Oh, yeah. It's ha- got that kind of Marvel quality to it. It's like you know, de- dead in air quotes kind of thing. Yeah. But I always forget about it. I always forget about the Tim Gunn save. And I'm always surprised when he uses it. And it makes me feel good. Let's see. On the uh, let me look at my notes here. Oh, I, I can I. I also just want to say, I did not. I mean, obviously, you never get to eat the food on Top Chef, and I know people had. I don't know. People did not like Isaac's gumbo. I guess the judges were not into it. But that gumbo looked so fucking good. I wanted that gumbo. I was so hungry for gumbo. Looking at that, it was just attractively plated. It. I don't know. I was super into it as a viewer of the TV show. That gumbo and watching it, it looked like when he was cooking the sausage, uh, uh, yeah, sausage. It, it looked like scallops almost the way he had browned them. Mm-hmm. It looks so good, yeah. So duck gumbo with roasted jalapeno and dewy sausage, crispy rice cake and duck cracklings. You know this this season is really there's a lot of uh, I guess at another time we would call it nouveau cuisine. There's a lot of like little does this seem does the plating seem like awfully cute this season? I think it's um is it a trend? <sighs> I think that so I actually feel like the food trend right now is going the opposite direction. So right now, I think that I, I feel like the co- the food the cool food trend right now. I mean, there's no like one trend in all of food, but I feel like what's sure. what's most trendy in food is um, less ornate, less. Uh, it's it's all right now. It's all about like de uh, um, making the food not so precious. So it's like oh, you're talking about rustic food, rustic and family style, and like you know uh, southern biscuits where you pull them apart. Like that's very cool in food right now. People, I mean, obviously like doing elevated versions of that and twists on it, but a lot of like my you know the cool fancy restaurants I go to, it's like a big family style thing, and you all get in there and it's you're passing stuff around. So I think this might be. It's a little top chef. It's a little, you know, playing to the judges, making your thing look more considered, more thoughtful, more more high class, more expensive. But it's also maybe a little California. Uh, I think that's like a little a little L.A., the idea of like the little dainty thing on the white plate. And there's also like regional trends in food. So I think that that could be just responding to the, the food culture that they're in. I have a production conspiracy theory that, um, like, actually, I think this episode looked the best because they're back in L.A. where they have all of their resources. Um, right. And when they're off location, like, it's like, well, maybe you should make your food look real nice. And because um, they don't, like, the food shots, which I normally just absolutely adore, um, are just not that great this season with the exception of the times they're in L.A. Yeah, I feel like maybe my eyes are going, but there doesn't seem like it's not as clear. Like, it doesn't feel as as crisp well I, I accidentally bought this episode in hd even though so i buy the whole i bought the whole season on in sd but sometimes when you go to watch it it like forgets that you bought it you know itunes is 
it's a, we've, we've discussed this, but uh, I'm very confused about how to use iTunes. And I accidentally paid two ninety nine to p- purchase this episode again in HD, and I watched it in HD. <clears throat> and I did notice that during the judging, all of the judges had uh, IFBs in their ears, the little wireless like earpieces. The like I saw Michael had one, and I thought that was a hearing aid. Um, his was the most conspicuous. Also, he had a he had a, he had a nose ring. Uh, yeah, he's looking good. Looking co- yeah, keep going, Michael. Just keep going. You still have some skin left. <laughs> what was what was my note? I said, uh, "Where's our notes?" I said he. Uh, I said he looks like a goth girl's moleskin. <laughs> <laughs> like, like looks like someone's just been doodling on on, on him, and he maybe woke up and went, "Ah, where did these come from?" Oh, I have another neck tattoo, Michael. That's going to look great in a few years. Keep going. Uh, but uh, the, all the judges had IFBs, and I didn't know. Is that always happened? And I didn't notice, and I've never noticed. Or was it that I bought? I finally bought an episode in HD. Um, I don't know. I've always heard those little ear guys. Alex, you know, you probably know this. Are those IFBs? Everyone, okay, I'm crazy. It's a little earpiece. It's the little, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like a little like a Tom York uh, thing. Yeah, Cyrano de Bergerac. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a, like a like a Tom York Morrissey thing. Yeah, exactly. Sure. It is uh, stands for interruptible fallback, which is basically a talkback system, so that um, the producers or a cameraman or whoever can be like, "All right, uh, we're going to cut to you now," and so say something interesting or smile. Oh, yeah. smart. Marjorie won for her curry, which she yay. Marjorie. Why did she make the green curry even though there was no lemongrass? I don't know. No lemongrass. She fixed it. And uh, uh, Jason oh, yeah, went home. Won? He made a dish about a memory of how he used to yell at his uh, uh, chefs. But talk about a Philip moment. He made it. Oh di- my god! So, so great! It's so great that he's so much more uh, laid back now. <laughs> you could even I mean they actually did a little bit of doo doo on him. Where like he would go like, oh, you know, back then I was really uh, I was really tightly wound, and yeah. <laughs> you could see like, mm-hmm. Unlike now, when you're you're so you're so sanguine, and uh, very quickly to uh, just get into the last chance kitchen, which was sponsored by Soyve, very teriyaki Soy sauce, uh, the uh, official Jewish uh, brand of teriyaki sauce. Uh, I uh, I did notice that Jason uh, was shake; he was shaking like crazy, like he was and sweating, sweating, and sweating and shaking, like, like he was like going through like DTS or something. Angelina made something. He made something. I didn't write down what they were, but Jason won. Yeah, this one, you know, I'm going to say, first of all, I enjoy the Soyve family of products. Uh, I like a Soyve. It's, if you're, like, just a lazy man and you want to make a chicken, like, Soyve is a good way to go. Not so great as an ingredient It's uh, for, for a cooking show because <laughs> it's pretty powerful. I've always seen this at the, uh, at the Mariano's. I've been very confused by it. I, I, the Jewish branding does not inspire me to in the uh, authenticity of the uh, teriyaki sauce. You don't think so? You don't think you don't think of a lot of the great Japanese cuisines being filtered through uh, Jewish American culture? Uh, my my people would not know uh, Japanese food if it uh, uh, did the thing that happens in the second part of that simile. Then just avoiding making jokes. You know, <laughs> if you're from New York, you can just nine eleven everything. Well, the reason I burnt my burger, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't gonna <laughs> I wasn't gonna. <laughs> I wasn't going to reveal this, but uh, I was also late. I, I just really uh, haven't moved on. I just really haven't moved on. <laughs> I burned it. I burned it in honor of the day that I was late on 9-11. This is Top Chef. is not Top Scallops. <laughs>